thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, I don't know about any of you, but I like to watch courtroom dramas like Law and Order and A Few Good Men, a civil action. I like trials that are are captivating the defendant and his alleged uh, crime, the prosecution, you know, trying to prove his guilt, the defense trying to prove his innocence. And, And one of the main things that draws you into a trial is who's on trial. You know, if there's someone that you don't know, someone that doesn't have any fame, someone that, you know, you don't really care about, you're not really drawn in. But when it's someone famous, someone with influence, someone with power, and you see them on trial for some crime, all of a sudden, everyone's captivated. I remember in 1995, I just graduated from high school, and the whole O.J. Simpson trial came to bounce, and man, people were getting off work to watch that thing. I mean, the, the world was captivated by, you know, this famous athlete who, you know, is accused of... Uh, committing these two heinous crimes, and you know everyone was kind of brought into that. Well, I bring that up because this morning we're going to look at the most uh, important trial in all of the history of mankind. It deals with the most important ever to walk the face of the earth, and that is the trial of Jesus, where sinful men tried and convicted the perfect Son of God. You know, Jesus' trial would have made a, a captivating courtroom drama because it was full of corruption, it was full of complexity, and it was full of compromise. It was full of corruption because the accusations against Jesus were a lie, the witnesses that came were false witnesses, and the trial itself was illegal. It was full of complexity because, as we'll see this morning, it has six different stages to it. And it was full of compromise because those trying Jesus compromised many things in order to to put him to death. Now, in order to get the big picture of Jesus's trial, you really need to draw from all the Gospels because each Gospel looks at it from a different angle and gives different details, but none of the Gospels give all the details. And so as we look through Luke this morning, we're also going to draw from the other Gospels to get a bigger perspective of this very significant trial of Jesus. And we're not going to look at every detail from every Gospel because we don't have time, but I am going to draw from some of the other Gospels so that we get a better perspective of the things that Jesus went through, of what he had to deal with. And I think it's important for us to see that. So we have a bigger perspective of what he went through for you and what he went through for me. Now, when we finish last week, we see that Luke reveals to us that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And from there, he was taken to Caiaphas, the high priest's house. And outside Caiaphas's house, we saw Peter. That's who Luke focuses on. That's what we focused on last week. There, Peter warming himself by the enemy's fire, denying Jesus three times. That's the focus that Luke deals with. But Luke doesn't deal with what's happening in Caiaphas's house. He doesn't deal with the start of Jesus's trial. And so we have to go to the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Mark to start Jesus's trial, to figure out from Gethsemane when he was arrested, what is the next thing that happened to him so that we can see and understand all these things that transpire. So we're going to start in John's Gospel, chapter 18. Oops, we go back home. Verse 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, something important to note, if you look through the book of Exodus, or you look through the Old Testament, you realize there was only meant to be one high priest at a time over the nation of Israel. And there's something very interesting that transpired here during the life of Jesus. They actually had two high priests. Annas was the high priest by birthright. 
He was the high priest that the Jews appointed to be in that role. But he did some things that the Romans didn't like. Remember the Jews and the Romans, you know, they had issues. And so Annas made some decisions for the nation of Israel that the Romans didn't like. And so the remote Romans said, you know what, you're no longer high priest. We now appoint your son-in-law, Caiaphas, as high priest. And so now you have the Jews who say, uh-uh, Rome, you don't tell us who our high priest is. We still see Annas as our high priest because he's the one that we appointed. And Rome says, well, we don't even you know, view him as high priest at all. We view Caiaphas as high priest because that's the one we appointed. And so you have these two groups. You have two high priests, one that the Jews actually accepted and one that the Romans accepted. And that's important to note as we see this trial of Jesus transpiring. Now, the first person that Jesus goes before is Annas the high priest that the Jews recognize as the authority over the nation of Israel. They bring Jesus to Annas. We see that here in John's Gospel. But we're not given much detail as to what transpires, what they say to one another. John just shows us that that is the first place, the first person that Jesus goes to. But here's the issue. In order for the Jews to bring this trial to a Roman court, they had to go to Caiaphas. Because the Romans didn't recognize Annas and his power. And so they brought Jesus first to Annas because they viewed Annas as the one who's over the nation of Israel. But then they take him to Caiaphas because they realize the only way we can take this to a Roman court is if Caiaphas is the one over this. Because the Romans don't recognize the power of Annas. They only recognize who they appointed, Caiaphas. And so Jesus' trial starts before Annas. And then they take Jesus from Annas to Caiaphas, and they go specifically to Caiaphas's house. And so that's where we're going to pick up in Mark's gospel. We hear what transpires. This is the house where Peter is out front of, denying Jesus three times, but we didn't get told in Luke's gospel what was happening in that home. Mark tells us what transpires in the home. So let's see what happens. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53, it says this, And they led Jesus away to Caiaphas the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warned himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him saying, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and with three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. So Mark tells us here in verse 53 that Jesus was led away to Caiaphas' house, and the religious leaders, they assemble there in his home. If you go to Israel today, you can actually go to where Caiaphas' house would be, and underneath his home, they have basically a dungeon area where they would have kept Jesus during this night that this transpired. And so all these religious leaders are gathered at Caiaphas' house to put Jesus on trial. Now, something important to note is that Jesus' trial was very illegal according to Jewish law. According to the own laws that they were supposed to be practicing, there were specific things to protect the accused. Just like in our legal system, there are things put in place to protect people who are accused of crimes. You're innocent and so proven guilty. And so there are things put in place to have that transpire. In Jewish law, there were certain things that were put in place as well. There are over 12 laws that the Jews broke in order to try Jesus. So this trial is very illegal. I'll share with you just a few of the laws that the Jews broke. According to Jewish law, a case had to be tried in the day and at the council's official meeting place in order to be legal. You could never try someone at night, and you couldn't try someone that wasn't in the official meeting place. Like today, you would have to try someone in a courtroom. Well, they had their own courtroom. Well, guess where Jesus is tried for the first time? At night, in the house of Caiaphas. That was illegal. That was not something that was allowed. According to Jewish law, you couldn't have a trial on the eve of Sabbath or any Jewish festival. So you cannot convict someone or have a trial when the Sabbath was coming or a big Jewish festival. They said, you know what, we're going to wait until after that. Well, the biggest Jewish festival of the year, that was the eve of it, Passover. And so they shouldn't have been having any trial that night or that day, but yet they did it anyway, which once again was illegal. According to Jewish law, if the accused was sentenced to death, there had to be given at least one full 24-hour day for the accused to have witnesses to come on his or her behalf to testify. Jesus was not given that time. 
They convicted him, they sentenced him, they executed him all at the same day. According to the Jewish law, all evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses who were separately examined and who could have no contact with one another. Well, as we see here in Mark, that didn't happen. Not only were the witnesses false witnesses, but they couldn't agree. So they didn't have two witnesses agreeing on anything. Once again, this would have been a legal proceeding. According to Jewish law, to bear false witness was punishable by death. Notice nothing takes place to all these false witnesses coming forth and falsely testifying against Jesus. Now there's at least seven other laws that the trial broke, but you, you get the picture. This trial was illegal. These Jewish religious leaders knew their legal system, knew the laws, and specifically, purposely broke them in order to try Jesus. So what do these religious leaders want to accomplish with this illegal trial? What's the point? Why do it? Well, verse 55 tells us, Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus. Why? To put him to death, but found none. This whole illegal trial was put together for one specific purpose. We, we know what the Jewish leaders want. They want Jesus dead. But they're not stupid. They're already scared of the, the crowd. That's why Judas and them came up with that plot of arresting Jesus when the multitude wasn't there. But they realized we can't just sentence him to death. We have to have something worthy of death to sentence him for. Well, I've got a great idea. Let's just get people to lie and say that Jesus is guilty of things worthy of death. We'll sentence him, and then we'll be able to stand before the multitude and say, Well, see, he's guilty, and we're going to try, and we're going to execute him. But notice that the people who they bring forward can't actually even come together with, you know, you figure, okay, you guys are all going to lie. Get your story straight. You're all going to have false testimony. But we're told uh, in verses 56 and 59 that um, they did not even agree on their testimony, uh, which is kind of a, a sad reality. They can't even do that right. But um, notice one of the lies spoken of about Jesus in verse 58. It says, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made with without hands. You know, this is a very clever lie. This is one of the lies that is most effective because it takes a bit of truth and it twists it. If you remember, Jesus does say something similar to this, but he does not say what they say he says. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, and Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Notice Jesus didn't say he would be the one doing the destroying. He said that he would be the one raising it up. And he was actually speaking about his body. He wasn't speaking about the physical temple at all. So these false accusers, they take something Jesus said, they, they twisted it, they add to it, and they use it as an accusation against him. The worst form of lie is a lie in which there's an element of truth because it's now easier to believe. So they can't come together with testimonies that they agree upon, and, and now you know, they're in a, a difficult place. You know, the whole point of this illegal trial was, let's get Jesus in a place where we can you know, say, okay, here he's guilty of something worthy of death, and then convict him. Well, that's not happening. So the high priest finally says something to Jesus. Mark chapter 14. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent and answered nothing. You know, the fact that Jesus keeps silent here is kind of baffling to me in the sense of, you know what, when someone says something that's not true about me, when someone says and brings false accusations, there's something within us that wants to defend ourselves. There's something in us that say, well, no, that's not True, we want to protect our reputation. We want to get back at those who dare say such thing about us. I remember growing up, you know, my brother and sister are both older than me. They would always tell people that I was adopted. They both are blonde. Obviously, I'm not. Uh, I'm more attractive than they are. But, you know, I didn't look like them. And so they would always tell people I was adopted. And I would get so upset by that and try to prove, no, I'm not. You know, that, that's a lie. And I never just let it happen. I would always, you know, come against that. I didn't keep silent. But here Jesus... You know, he has these false accusations, and he keeps silent. He answers nothing. And, you know, Jesus could have mounted a magnificent defense. 
He could have called forth so many witnesses that would have backed up who he was. I mean, the people that he healed could have come into the courtroom. Those dead that were raised, those blind that now see, even the demon possessed. Remember, the demons knew who he was, and he would actually tell them to be silent. Oh, the Son of God is here. I mean, he could have brought so many that could have testified to his deity, but yet he kept silent and answered nothing. You know, this reminds me of something that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12. Starting in verse 17, he says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to God's wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, I think there's a wonderful lesson in here for us. Because our flesh wants to take vengeance upon ourselves. When Jesus says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Leave it with me. Trust me with it. Leave these things with me, these accusations. I will defend you. I think this is something we often find very difficult to do. You know, in the legal system, there's a saying, the man who seeks to defend himself has a fool for a lawyer. What it's saying is you're foolish if you try to defend yourself. You should have someone else defending you. Our defense attorney as Christians should be God. We should allow him to defend us. I believe for the most part when we're falsely accused, we should follow Jesus' example and just let the Lord be our defense. Now I know there are some occasions where we need to stand up and we need to speak on behalf of ourselves and share those things. But even when that happens, make sure you're doing it for the right reason. Not because of pride, not because you want to get even, not because you're angry, but because that's what the Lord's leading you to do in that time. So after Jesus doesn't respond to the false accusations against him, notice the high priest once again asks Jesus a very direct question. Again, the high priest asks him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Look at Jesus' answer, verse 62. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? All the witnesses that the high priest brought forward, they couldn't agree. They couldn't do what they wanted them to do. So there's still no way they can actually sentence Jesus of something. But they do know if Jesus will declare that he's God, they can throw blasphemy at him. And so they just get right to it. And he says, Are you the Son of God? And notice Jesus' answer. I am. And I want to point that out and make sure you understand that because there's a lot of people who claim, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Actually, he claimed to be God quite a lot. And here's a very clear one when they ask, are you God? Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's obvious. He, he definitely declared that. And their response is very obvious. Hey, what further need is there for witnesses? Here's a man who's blaspheming. He's claiming to be God. So when Jesus responds, I am God, they stop the trial, which again was illegal. Again, to stop it, there were supposed to be more proceedings, and you know, people on Jesus' behalf were supposed to be allowed to come, but he tears his clothes. What further need is there for witnesses, these false ones that we brought up? He said it himself. Now we can do what we came here to do. But while this illegal trial is happening at Caiaphas' house, Peter's outside denying Jesus, and they take Jesus, and they walk him through the courtyard. So they've done this illegal trial. It's all done. And as Jesus walks out into the courtyard, it's the third time that Peter denies Jesus. The cock crows, and we're told that their eyes meet. And so Jesus walks into the courtyard, and he sees Peter, and Peter denies him for that third time. And then Peter runs out of the courtyard, weeping bitterly. We looked at that last week. So those are the first two events of Jesus' trial that Luke doesn't record. And now we come to Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 63, and we pick up and we see the third thing that's going to transpire here in the trial of Jesus. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who's the one who will strike you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. So after Jesus is pronounced guilty of blasphemy in this illegal trial, now they do something else illegal. They start beating him. They take him out. And notice they're not just mocking him, but they blindfold him. Oh, son of God, why don't you prophesy for us? Who's the next guy who's going to punch you? 
And then they hit him in the face, and then they say it again, and then they hit him. And I want you to notice something, because, you know, when we're thinking about what Jesus went through, when you are blindfolded and someone is hitting you, that's much worse than when you can see. Because when you can see where the punch is coming from, you can roll with the punches. That's why in boxing, if someone's eye gets swollen shut, they'll stop the fight. Because if he can't see where a punch is coming from, it can be very, very dangerous. Jesus can't see where any of these punches are coming from, and these guys are just hitting him and beating his face. So these guys are just, not just mocking Jesus, they're brutally beating him. And an important thing to note here, Jesus knows what it's like to be lied about. He knows what it's like to be mocked. He knows what it's like to be beaten. You know, I think we go through things sometimes and we kind of like, God, you can't understand. Actually, he can. He's gone through things much worse than we will ever encounter. He knows what it's like to go through this. And when we bring those things to him, he sympathizes with us. He understands what it feels like. He went through those things himself. And he can get us through those. He knows what we need. All of these things happened at night. And when it was day, the religious leaders, they gather again. And they conduct another trial. So notice this. First, Jesus is brought before Annas, the high priest that the Jews recognized, and then he's brought before Caiaphas in Caiaphas' house at night, which was illegal. And now we're going to see him being brought before the true religious council in the daytime in the proper place that he should have been brought before. Verse 66. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you're the Christ... Tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So now daytime comes. This illegal trial has happened at night. Now the sun comes up. The day is here. And the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, they come together and they take Jesus to their council, the place that was the official place that they should be trying people. It would have looked something like this. This is the place where the Sanhedrin would come. The Sanhedrin was a place where the people would come before, and they were 70 religious leaders from both the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were the ones who would try people, led by the high priest and then the 70 Sanhedrin. This was the place where the official court should have taken place, and this is where Jesus should have been to begin with. So now they're bringing him into the official place in front of the official people. But why? Why did the religious leaders... Meet it again. Well, why put on this new trial? They just had a trial at night. Why are they doing now this trial at day? Well, they also knew that according to their own laws and regulations, the first trial was illegal. So anything that was said or done in that first trial really held no weight in trying to execute Jesus. And so now they had to just put on this show and put on a trial in the right place because they recognize if we bring this to a Roman court or we bring this before the multitude, we have to do it the right way, even though it's still all legal and a sham. They wanted to put on this show that everything was right. So the first trial was held at night in the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. It was illegal. Nothing that was said or done there could be legally used to condemn Jesus. So now they have another trial. And notice here in the second trial, they say to Jesus, are you the Christ? And he responds to them in this one. He says, you know what? If I tell you, you're not going to believe. Just a few hours ago, I told you who I was. None of you believed. I know this is a sham. I know you guys only want me dead. I know you don't believe me. I already told you who I was. You know, you're just posing this question because you want me to answer so that you can convict me. So once again, all of them say, are you the son of God? And Jesus says, you rightly say that I am. And they say, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. What a silly statement. What further testimony do we need? They haven't had any other testimony yet. The testimony that they did have the night before were a bunch of people who were lying, who couldn't even agree on their own lies. And so really they just say, forget that. That didn't work for us last night. We're not even going to bring those guys into this one. We're just going to ask Jesus, and hopefully he'll say again that he's God, and then we'll just convict him. And that's all they do. They pose the question. Jesus says he's God. And they say, well, what further need do we have of testimony? He is guilty of blasphemy. 
So first, Jesus is brought before Annas. Second, he's brought before Caiaphas in this illegal night trial. Third, he's brought before the Sanhedrin in the official council place at daytime to try to make it legal. Well, now the trial is going to go from the Jewish court to the Roman court, starting in Luke chapter 23. Let's see what happens next. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led Jesus to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nations and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the King. And Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the King of the Jews? And he answered and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. We're told this whole multitude of people that have convicted Jesus, they take Jesus now from their official council to Pilate. So they're moving from the Jewish court to the Roman court. But why? Why did the Jews need to take Jesus to Pilate in their Mock trial, they find Jesus guilty of blasphemy. According to you know the biblical Jewish law, if you're found guilty of blasphemy, you need to be stoned to death. So why didn't they just stone Jesus to death and get it over with? Why did they bring him to Pilate? Well, the Jews had their right to execute people taken away from them by Rome in 7 AD. And so they could punish people, but they couldn't execute people. That was only something that the Roman government could do. And so they want the death penalty. They don't want Jesus just beaten. They don't want Jesus, you know, anything but execution is not good enough for them. And so they have to come to Pilate in the Roman court, because Pilate and the Roman court are the only ones who can actually legally sentence Jesus to death. Now notice something. They come to Pilate. And when they come to Pilate, they share the accusations against Jesus. And as I was reading those accusations, it might have jumped out at you that, wait a second. At night, you were guilty of blasphemy. In day, you were guilty of blasphemy. Now you come to Pilate, and wait a second, there's three different accusations. None of them are blasphemy. They say, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is a king. Well, why would they change the accusation? Why would they say, not say, hey, Pilate, Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. Kill him. Why would they bring up these other three charges and leave blasphemy aside? Well, they recognize something about Pilate and the Roman government. They could care less if someone claimed to be God. They believed in lots of gods. They probably say, well, who cares? We have hundreds of gods. What's the harm of one more? They knew Pilate would not take that accusation seriously. He wouldn't do anything, especially kill someone over it. And so they realize, you know, we need to bring things that Pilate will take seriously. And so notice the three charges that they bring against Jesus. First, basically, they say that Jesus is a revolutionary. He perverts the nations. Pilate, you better be on guard about this guy. That wasn't true about Jesus. Second accusation is that Jesus enticed or incited the people not to pay their taxes. He's forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar. I mean, come on, Pilate. You don't want someone like that around. Once again, this wasn't true. A couple chapters ago, they posed that question to Jesus. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? What does Jesus say? Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus clearly says, pay your taxes. So another bold-faced lie. The third accusation was that Jesus claimed to be a king in opposition to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, the king. Now, this is somewhat true. Jesus did declare that he was Christ, the king, but the way in which they're sharing it is, oh, you know what? He's dangerous. You better watch out. He's going to try to establish this earthly kingdom and overthrow Caesar and overthrow Rome. So there is a guy that you want to deal with, Pilate. You don't want to be allowing him to get away with these things. Well, we saw earlier there were false accusations in Jesus' Jewish trial, and now we see more false accusations here in Jesus's. Roman trial. Now, after hearing these accusations, Pilate examines Jesus. In the Gospel of John, we're told that he brings him privately in and examines him, and they have this conversation, which we won't get into for time. But one of the questions that Pilate asks Jesus is, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus tells him, it is as you say. 
Now, Pilate was not a stupid man. He could see through the motives of the Jewish leaders. He had no problem sizing up the situation here. And he recognizes Jesus hasn't done anything guilty of being executed. And he says, you know what? I find no fault in this man. These, these trumped up charges, I see what they are. you got an issue with this man and you want me to take care of him for you, but that's just not going to happen. I don't see any fault in this man. I don't see that these things that you're claiming he's done, that he's done. Now, the trial should have ended right there. Pilate is in control. He's the man who will either declare Jesus innocent or guilty. Right now, he says, I know, see no fault in him. That means, here you are. You are innocent. Jesus should have been released and set free. But notice that when he says, I find no fault in him, let's see the response of the religious leaders, who obviously did not like to hear that. When they hear Pilate's verdict, they become more fierce and emphasize their accusation that Jesus was a leader of insurrection. He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Now, they are playing up to the fact that Pilate would be fearful of this. Pilate, three times before this event, got in trouble with the Caesar because he was not sensitive to the Jewish culture. He brought in idols into Jerusalem. All sorts of problems transpired because of it. And so he had lots of revolts happening. And ultimately, his life was on the line in front of Caesar because Caesar said, you better get that place in order or else. And so when they bring this up, oh, here's someone who's leading this revolt, he has to take care and take uh, uh, pay attention to that because this is the Passover. There's millions of Jews that are in that city and something can happen and get out of control real quick. And they realize that and they realize that Pilate would have been sensitive to that. And so they're pushing that saying, oh, Pilate, you got to get rid of this guy. You don't understand what kind of damage he could cause. But you know what? They say a word that kind of turned the tables here. They say, you know, he, he's doing all this stuff uh, all the way from Galilee down to here. And Pilate says, Galilee? Is this man a Galilean? Oh, well, that's Herod's jurisdiction. Take him to Herod to try him. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He already said, I find no fault in this man. But he also sees that the religious leaders really, really, really want him dead. And instead of making a decision about Jesus, he now says, you know, I'm just going to pass the buck. Go take him to Herod. If he's from Galilee, Herod can deal with it. I won't deal with it. What Pilate is seeking to do here is not to have to make a decision about Jesus. But you know what? A non-decision is a decision. It was just the wrong decision. That was Pilate's problem. He was trying to remain neutral about Jesus, but Jesus does not allow us to remain neutral concerning him. He says, if you're not for me, you're against me. You can't be neutral. If you have not received me, guess what? You have rejected me. If you do not confess me, then ultimately you have denied me. You see, there are plenty of people, I'm sure you have come across them, I know I have a lot, I'm not going to make a decision about Jesus. I'm not going to believe that he's God, I'm not going to believe that he's not. I'm just going to kind of stay neutral. But what they don't realize is that decision to stay neutral is a decision. And it's ultimately a decision to not believe in Jesus. It's ultimately a decision to reject him. Because in saying, I'm not going to decide about him, well actually you just did. You decided that you won't believe in him. You decided that you won't accept him. You decided your own fate in trying to say, I'm not going to make a decision. To not decide about Jesus is to decide against Jesus. In John chapter 3, verse 18, it says, He who believes in Jesus is not condemned. Wonderful news. But here's the bad news. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For those people who say, I'm not going to make a decision about Jesus, ultimately, they have not placed their belief in him, and they're condemned. They're condemned for their sin, and that condemnation is going to be an eternal one. They will be condemned for all eternity in hell because of not making a decision about Jesus. Pilate doesn't want to make a decision about Jesus, so he sends Jesus to Herod. Well, now this trial gets even more complex. It starts with Annas, goes to Caiaphas, then goes to the, the council, then it comes to Pilate, and now Pilate says, oh, he's from Galilee, go to Herod. So now we have the fifth place that Jesus goes here on his trial. Let's see what happens when he gets to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at the time, verse 8. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. 
Then he questioned him with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his men of war treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. So now the religious leaders, they go from Pilate to Herod, and they bring Jesus before Herod. And you first read, oh, Herod was all excited to see Jesus. Now, remember who this Herod is. This is not Herod the Great, not the one who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby, when he had all the boys under two years of age killed. Herod the Great had another son, Herod Antipas. This is Herod Antipas, and he was given the rule of this region of Galilee. Herod had three sons, and they kind of broke up his rule into three different areas. Galilee was the rule of this son, Herod Antipas. You remember in Luke's gospel that, you know what? John the Baptist and Herod Antipas had some, you know, time together. Actually, we're told that this Herod, when he listened to John the Baptist preach, he was open to it. And, and he was really moved by it. But then, you know what? He had his own sin issue. He sees his brother's wife and says, you know what, I like her, I want to marry her. And he does so, and John the Baptist says, you can't do that. That's a sin. And I won't get into the whole story, but the end of the day is Herod had John the Baptist's head chopped off because of what he did. So Herod has already you know, had an experience of hearing you know, the message from John the Baptist. He kills John the Baptist, and he has never had an encounter with Jesus. Of all the time Jesus has been ministering, he's all excited. Ooh, Jesus is here. But notice the reason he's excited. He was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see Jesus do a miracle. Not he had longed for to see Jesus and to hear Jesus' message. Oh, I want to see a miracle. I want to be entertained by this guy. I mean, I've heard all sorts of people saying that they've done this and done that. Go ahead, Jesus, entertain me. Well, Herod asked Jesus different questions. Jesus doesn't respond. The religious leaders vehemently accuse Jesus. Jesus doesn't respond. And so Herod and his men of war, if Jesus isn't going to amuse them with a miracle, they'll be amused themselves. And they, they put these really this robe on him that was meant for a king. And, oh, you're the king of the Jews, huh? Well, here, let's dress you up like a king then. And they're mocking Jesus, and they're getting their own amusement out of Jesus. And then they send Jesus back to Pilate. You know, I've mentioned a few things about Jesus' silence, but I think it's important to note it was prophesied that this would happen. In Isaiah's Gospel, chapter 53, verse 7, we're told, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53 is an amazing chapter that is prophesying about the Messiah. But one of these things is, you know what, he's not going to respond. He's going to stay silent. And when you think of all the accusations, amazing that Jesus does not open his mouth. Well, now we get this even more complex aspect to Jesus' trial that's now coming to the sixth stage. First in front of Annas, then in front of Caiaphas at night, then in front of the council at day, then in front of Pilate, then to Herod, and now finally back to Pilate. And Pilate has already tried to pass the buck. Pilate's already declared Jesus is innocent. Now it's coming back to him. He probably thought, well, good. Got, got past that one. I don't have to deal with this anymore. Herod will deal with it. Well, now it's back in Pilate's lap, and he's going to have to deal with Jesus. Let's see what he does. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, Have you brought this man to me as one who misleads the people? And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I found no guilt in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast." So Jesus is brought once again before Pilate, and once again he says, you know what, guys, you've already brought him here. I didn't find anything that he's guilty of, of the crimes that you claim he's guilty of. I know that he's not guilty of that. We sent him over to Herod. Herod didn't find anything guilty of him. You know what? There's nothing that he's done deserving of death. I am not going to sentence him to death. He should be let go with nothing happening to him. But Pilate, he wants to appease these religious leaders, and he thinks, you know what, here's what I'm going to do, guys. I'm going to do something for you. Obviously, you don't like this man. I'm going to chastise him, and then I'll let him go. 
He should have just let him go. But no, no, I'm going to chastise him. Now, I want you to understand what that means. Because, well, chastise, you know, he's going to slap him on the wrist. You know, what is, what is Jesus going to go through as he's chastised? The Roman custom of chastising or scourging was a very brutal whipping. The Romans used what they called, where you get that, a flagrum. As you can see from this picture, the flagrum had several leather cords. But notice what's in it. There was bits of bone, bits of metal, bits of whatever they could put in there. Uh, and the, the point of this was, you know, if you just have a, a whip that's leather, you know, it hits, bounce off the skin when you pull it back. But when you have these things, when it hits the skin, these things grab hold of your flesh. And when they pull the whip back, it pulls chunks of your flesh with it. Now, usually they would strike someone at least 40 times with this. Imagine each time that hits your, your flesh, ripping parts back. Josephus says, actually, you could, at the end of some of these, you could see people's internal organs and kidneys and things because their muscle was ripped off. I mean, this was something that was so brutal that oftentimes people just died specifically from this. Now, there were four different things that the Romans used in their whipping process. This was the worst, and it was only usually given to someone who afterwards would be executed because this usually killed them anyway. Uh, and so this is a, not something like, okay, I'm just going to chastise him and let him go. I'm going to put him through a horrible torture. And Pilate's thinking, surely that will appease you. I mean, you have no grounds for anything that you're saying about him. I'm going to put him through something that no man deserves if he hasn't done anything. And so, you know, then you guys will be happy. I'm going to do this to him. But you know what? The religious leaders aren't happy about that. They don't want Jesus scourged. They want Jesus killed. They want Jesus gone. Well, Pilate tries to come up with another way. He's passed the buck to Herod. I'll beat him. That's not working. Well, he's got one more trick up his sleeve. During the Passover feast, it was Pilate's custom to release a prisoner to the Jews, trying to make good relations with them when the Passover would come. He would take one of their prisoners at every Passover and say, hey, you guys choose. I'm going to give you one of these prisoners. Well, they had a prisoner who was there a man by the name of Barabbas. Pilate figures, you know what? If Jesus is claiming to be king and he is what they say he is, then I'm sure there's a lot of people in Israel who love him. And so, you know what? If I say release Jesus, he'll have plenty of support. Well, let's see what happens. Luke gives us some in details, but Mark gives us even more details. So we're going to look at Mark's gospel, chapter 15. Now, at the feast, he was accustomed to release one prisoner to them, whoever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels who had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had done for them. But Pilate answered and said, Do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him, whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Pilate's tried by giving him to Herod to pass the buck. He's tried by saying, hey, I'll beat him really bad. Neither of those things work. So now he comes to his third way of trying to not make a decision and deal with this situation with Jesus. And so he says, you know, I have this custom. I give someone to you every Passover. Here's a murderer and a terrorist, Barabbas. Do you want me to release him to you? course he's thinking they want or jesus and he's thinking well i got it here i mean there's no way they're going to choose barabbas over jesus and we're told that the religious leaders stir up the crowd to say no 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 release to us barabbas now at this point in time Pilate, obviously his plan has not gone well and he's faced with a decision do i release jesus who i know is innocent or do i release barabbas who i know is a guilty murderer and terrorist this seems to be a pretty obvious decision for Pilate, but it was a hard decision because he was very concerned with pleasing the crowd. Pilate basically says to the crowd, you decide for me. What then do you want me to do with Jesus? 
You know, his question should have been, what should I personally do with Jesus? Instead of, what do you guys think I should do with Jesus? And the crowd responds, crucify him. And Pilate still is torn by this. What has he done to deserve such a horrible death? They don't have an answer. They just shout even louder, crucify him. Just do it. Pilate poses a great question. The crowd has no answer. And notice what he's moved by the most, verse 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Notice here that Pilate violates his own conscience, violates his own desire. He says, I find no fault in this man. Pilate did not want to have Jesus crucified. He did not want to sentence Jesus to death. He recognized Jesus was not deserving of this, and he had all the power to let him go. He could do it. The religious leaders did not have power over him. He had power over them. He could have said, I don't care what you guys think. I'm not sentencing Jesus to death. Why would Pilate violate his own conscience and desire and sentence an innocent man to death? Well, we're told the reason because he wanted to please the crowd. What a huge warning for us. I know so many, especially young people, who do not want to make decisions for Christ because they want to please the crowd. It's not popular, and they want to be popular, and it really doesn't change when you get older. Oftentimes, there's this, this dilemma that we have of, you know what, I don't want to stand up for Jesus, or I don't want to accept Jesus because I want to please the crowd. Pilate made a choice between conscience and convenience, between the right way and the easy way, a choice between the voice of the crowd and the voice of Jesus. Now, granted, Pilate fought with it for a little bit. He tried every way that he could think of not to have to deal with Jesus, not to have to, you know, have to deal with this situation. But you know what? There was no escape from the decision he had to make for Jesus, just like there is no escape from the decision that you and I have to make for Jesus. Pilate was trying to pass off to others a decision about Jesus so he wouldn't have to deal with it himself. And it goes all the way to the end. I want you to notice what Matthew's Gospel says to us, because he even tries to pass off the consequences of his decision. He realizes, I want to please you so bad that I will give Jesus to you to be executed. But notice in Matthew's Gospel, he does something to try to say, you know what, but I'm not going to take the responsibility for this, even though he's the one making the decision. Matthew 27, notice what happens. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that atonement was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person you see to it. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and our children. That is a scary statement in itself. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Notice that Pilate tries to pass on the consequences of his decision to someone else. Here, give me some water. I wash my hands of this. I'm not guilty of this man's blood. Actually, you are. You're in charge, and you have the decision. You can choose to release him, or you can choose to execute him. You are choosing to execute him, and don't think that you're going to get away with that. Oh, I can see him in hell. Oh, I wash my hands of it. You know, why am I being guilty of this rejection of Jesus Christ? In a sense, all of us are like Pilate. We're sitting on the judgment seat determining what to be done with Jesus. All of us make a decision, a personal decision. What am I going to do with Jesus? You'll either accept him or reject him. But we need to understand whatever we decide has eternal consequences. And something else important to understand is your decision to either believe in Jesus or reject Jesus does nothing to change who he is or his destiny. You see, people think, well, if I don't believe in Jesus, then that changes him or he's not God. Well, he is God. If you don't believe in him, that just means you don't believe in the truth. It doesn't change anything about who Jesus is, and it doesn't change anything about Jesus' destiny, who's going to rule and reign for all eternity, here for a thousand years and then in heaven. But one thing that we should understand is that, you know what, what we choose to believe about Jesus, whether we believe in him or not, it doesn't change who he is and his destiny, but it surely does change our destiny. 
When we choose to reject him, our eternal destiny is sealed in hell forever. When we choose to accept him, our eternal destiny is sealed in heaven forever. So his destiny isn't changed with our decision, but ours is. Pilate was in that place. He had a choice. He didn't want to make it. He wanted to stay in a place where he was neutral. The religious leaders just totally made their choice. They rejected Jesus completely. Each one of us are in that place where we have to make a choice for Christ or a choice to reject him. You either accept him and receive forgiveness of your sins, spend eternity with him in heaven, or you reject him. And you pay the consequences for your sins personally for eternity in hell. So we see Jesus' trial was full of corruption, full of complexity, full of compromise, full of corruption because the accusations against him were a lie. The witnesses that were there gave false testimony. The trial itself was illegal, full of complexity because there were six different stages, three in the Jewish court, three in the Roman court, first before Annas, then before Caiaphas, then in the day before the council, then before Pilate, then before Herod, then before Pilate again. Finally, Pilate, not wanting to, but wanting to please the crowd, gives Jesus over to be beaten and then executed on the cross. You know, the thing that really jumps out to me when I look at this, when I look at what we looked at before of Jesus in the garden, sometimes when we think of what Jesus went through for us, we jump straight to the cross. And obviously the cross is a great place to look and we think of what Jesus sacrificed for us, what he went through for us. But let's not forget that there's more to it than that. Leading up to the cross, a lot of horrible things happen. We start in the agony of the garden as he's sweating great drops of blood, as he's there praying and his disciples are sleeping, as he is betrayed and then he's denied. And then he goes through this horrible, illegal mock trial in front of all these different people, accused of things that he's innocent of. And let's remember, before he gets to the beating and he gets to the cross, these other things transpire in his life. And hopefully, for us, that just gives us a deeper recognition of how much he loves us. Because he went through that for you. He went through that for me. He stood and, and was silent in front of these accusers who could easily have destroyed. He could have easily defended himself. But he said, you know what? I willingly go through this. I willingly will accept the consequences and the punishment that is coming to me, even though I am perfect, even though I am undeserving, because I love every single person in this world, and I'm going to give my life for their sins. And so as you think of the trial... Don't just think of how unjust and how much of a mockery it was, but ultimately think of what Jesus endured for you, what he endured for me. Why don't the worship team come on up? I just want to take a moment just to be quiet, and we're going to finish with a song, but I just want us to think about what Christ has done. And maybe even this morning, just to focus more on this trial, more on the rejection, more on the betrayal, more on the denial, more on the mockery, more on the beatings, all these things that he was willing to endure for us. And let's just ponder that, and let's just express our gratitude to the Lord for what he's done for us. And so let's just take a moment just to be quiet and just to reflect upon what Jesus has done for us.